to Transformation Station. And uh, as they're leaving, my name is uh, Pastor John Reddy. I've been given the privilege to serve here as one of the elders and to be able to share with us this morning. And you'll notice right now that the ushers are making their way through and they're actually doing what I call a reverse offering. They're actually giving you something from the offering basket. And I'm going to ask that you take one envelope and you just hold on to it. Don't open it yet, but just keep that in your possession and I'll make it plain later on during the service why it's important that we have one of those. As uh, Pastor Chastine indicated, we've been uh, embarking on an exploration of managing God's money. And last week, he established through the story of the rich young ruler that, that Jesus is to be for each of us our eternal treasure. He quoted Jim Elliott, and I, I really like this. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I found myself sitting, I found myself sitting out there like you're sitting, and I found myself nodding, yes, yes, I get that, that's important. And then soon after, I began to think to myself, well, Jesus, help me to live that way. Because I appreciated the sentiment, but I needed to figure out, how, how's that going to happen in my life? Today, we're going to turn our attention to managing God's money through giving as we try to figure out how is it that we live that way. Now, I think all of us really appreciate stories of extreme generosity. From the scriptures, we remember in the Gospel of Luke, uh, how Jesus told us about the widow, and she surrendered her very last coin at the temple, and she did it as an act of faith. And, and, and I think of stories even today of billionaires who choose to give away all of their estates in pretty magnificent acts of benevolence. We really like to hear these stories as long as they're stories that don't necessarily demand much of us. The stories where we don't have to necessarily act on them. In fact, we love to be the recipient, but we're not sure that we actually want to be the giver. And so sometimes we get a little bit of squeamish, and I think that that's true for us here, even as Christians. Over the years, I'm slightly north of 50 now, I've heard a lot of um, objections, even from Christians, around the subject of giving. And so I've collected a list that maybe you've heard too. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking some of these. Um, tell me what you think. Uh, here's one. My giving is a private matter between God and me, no one else. Or Christians are under grace, we're not under law, so the obligation to give really doesn't apply to me. How about this one? I am up to my ears in debt, and I simply cannot give now. Or I would like to give, but really, John, we're a young couple. We have no nest egg. Or maybe you're an older couple, and you're heading into retirement. I would like to give, but I'm not sure that my spouse is in agreement. Or how about this one? Sometimes you'll hear this in church circles. I don't think I have the spiritual gift of giving. I don't give to my church because I already give to another ministry, or it's the proverbial, I already gave at the office. Stewardship is a lot more than just about money. I give my time and I give my talents by teaching. In fact, by teaching in Transformation Station, perhaps. And so I consider that to be my act of giving. Some people are honest and they say, you know what? No one ever really seems to appreciate my gift. 
And the one that really bothers me probably the most, small gifts don't really seem to matter. That's my top 10 list. I actually have one that's kind of a bonus. I, I chuckle when I hear it. My pastor ought to get a day job like the Apostle Paul because that's a more biblical way to minister. I've heard that a few times too. Well, here in New England, some of these objections appear to have taken root into our patterns of giving, even within the communities of faith, like here at Redemption Hill Church. So I want you to look up here at this graph, and it details some charitable giving patterns in the United States, and it's actually ranked by state. And this data was collected for the year 2012, and I think it was based on income tax information. And if you look carefully, I projected the bottom ranking of states in the United States. And did you notice anything interesting about the pattern? That's correct. Massachusetts ranks number 47 of 50 states listed. And here's what's even more incredible. All six of the bottom states are New England states. In, in, so relative to the rest of our nation, to be honest, New Englanders consistently tighten their purses and are probably the least generous financially when it comes to charitable giving. And, and before we appeal to the idea that that's just about income, you know, maybe we might think that New Englanders give away their time um, a little bit more readily. I can assure you that when I've looked at the very same sets of statistics, we rank at the bottom there for volunteer time that's offered as well. And so I think we have to be honest with ourselves. We live in a region that can be really tight, not only with our time, but also with our money when we compare ourselves to other parts of the country. Now, are you kind of curious as to who sits there in number one? Because I left that blank, and you probably want to know who finished first. So in charitable giving and as well volunteer giving of time, the state of Utah, it's heavily influenced by Mormon teaching, and uh, it probably overwhelms New England by almost three to one. And so before you get too persuaded by that and say, well, John, that's really not a picture of the church. That's a picture of the culture that we're serving in. I want to go back to last week when Pastor John gave us a few uh, nuggets based on the surveys that we shared. And of those who responded to our survey, 44% said that in their opinion, their giving was not sacrificial or not generous. And if we're just being honest, in, in, in light of the generosity of God to us, that kind of concerns us as elders. And I hope that that concerns you a little bit as well. And then in another response, he shared 35% of the people that responded to the survey told us that they really didn't have a great understanding of biblical principles that are related to managing God's money. And so this morning, we're going to do the first part of three parts and try to correct that. We're going to try and provide a stronger biblical understanding of managing our money. We're going to look at the scriptures and see what they have to teach us. And I trust that when we do that, we'll all arrive at the same main point, the main conclusion, that when we trust God as the owner and the provider of all that we have, we then become, as followers of Jesus Christ, free to respond with the patterns and the attitudes of biblical giving. And so I'm going to ask if you'll just bow your head and if you'll just repeat after me while I pray. Heavenly Father, speak to my heart and change my life. During the uh, opening scriptures this morning, uh, we read twice from Matthew chapter 6. And so maybe you can turn there in your Bibles and kind of stick your finger in there because I want to make a few observations about my first encouragement. You see, we should trust God as the owner and provider of all that we have. Last week, again, John did a great job of establishing the choice 
that we all face when it comes to earthly wealth and eternal treasure. And in this passage, Matthew chapter 6, that you're looking at, Jesus is in the midst of a couple of monologues, and he's addressing not only some gathering crowds that are following him, but also his disciples, that inner circle that's around him and picking off the nuggets. In verses 19 to 24, Jesus uses three different word pictures to help us in our understanding about wealth. He says first that there's a kind of treasure on earth and there's a kind of treasure in heaven and that we'll either focus our attention on one or we will focus our attention on the other. He also says that there's a kind of understanding that is like bad light, or in this case he calls it darkness, and a kind of understanding around wealth that is like good light or health. And finally he says that there's a kind of master called mammon in the Greek, or money here probably in your translation personified, and a kind of master called God. And Jesus makes it clear that we have a choice between these two treasures, where we're going to lay them up, and two visions. What are we going to fix our eyes on? And the most basic choice of all, either one of these two masters. And who is it that we, as followers of Christ, will choose to serve? He says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise, that's a strong word, despise the other. God, our Father, is a jealous God. He is an exclusive God. He requires not partial, but full faithfulness in all areas of our lives, and that includes our wealth. And so God is either served with a single-eyed devotion, as Jesus puts it here, or he is not served at all. If you take your finger and you follow down to verse 25, Jesus declares what I call a therefore. John rightly picked it out in his reading this morning. And it's in response to these three word pictures. And just as a sidebar, anytime Jesus is teaching and you get to something called therefore, you need to sit up and listen because something important is about to be said by him. There's a conclusion. And Jesus says that the one who lays up his treasure in heaven, the one who fixes his eyes properly on the Father and who chooses to serve him with wholeheartedness will enter into a future that is free from anxiety. Do you desire to be free from anxiety? I meet so many people in New England that are just so full of stress and anxiety. Look carefully at how many times Jesus in this passage references it. Verse 25, do not be anxious. Verse 27, by being anxious. Verse 28, why are you anxious? Verse 31, do not be anxious. Verse 34, do not be anxious. Verse 34, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I'm anxious just reading all the anxieties that are there. And see, this call by Jesus to not be anxious, it's not a call to laziness. It's not a call to apathy. Rather, it's a recognition that the Heavenly Father that has given each of us, you and me, life and a body, is certainly going to give us lesser necessities like food and clothing. And so fretting about such things, it betrays, Jesus says, the most basic faith that God, our Heavenly Father, is our provider and that He will be faithful. And He goes on to give us a couple more examples. If you look down in verse 26, some concrete examples, He points to, to the life that birds have been given and the food that He provides to sustain them. In verse 28, He points to the body that flowers have been given and the clothing that's provided to them 
so that they might be beautiful. And likewise, we're encouraged to not worry and to enter into a lifestyle that is distinct from the culture that we're in. Rather, verse 33, this is what he says, seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. So what does this have to do with giving? Well, I began thinking, why aren't we more naturally generous? Just why doesn't it giving flow from us in an easy manner? Because I started off by saying we all admire great examples of generosity. We appreciate certainly being the recipients of generosity, and yet many of us freeze before becoming generous ourselves. So why is that? Why, if generosity is noble, why, if it's welcome, why isn't it more evident in our lives? What stops us from giving? Well, I began to sort of meditate on this sermon, and I asked myself, of all of the objections and all of the reasons that I've heard in life about why we shouldn't give, which one seemed the most dominant? Which one resonated in my gut as the most truthful, the most honest, the most transparent. And then it hit me. I don't think I've ever really heard anybody make the following statement, but I think that it is probably the most basic objection to giving that there is. I don't give because I'm afraid. I'm not absolutely certain that I can trust God to take care of me. I'm anxious. I fear that when push comes to shove, it really will be up to me to provide whatever I need. And I think for us this morning, understanding what Jesus is trying to convey here is so important. It's so foundational to our understanding of giving. Because if we can grasp the reality of what Jesus is telling us, it will free us from these anxieties. And once we're free of these anxieties, we'll be free to give in the patterns and with the attitudes that Jesus commends to us. So let me put it this way. We serve a big God that we can trust no matter what. He's our creator. He's our provider. He is our sustainer. All that we have is because he's chosen to give it to us, either through a direct blessing or through enabling us to simply breathe the next breath that we take. And Jesus says, as we seek him, we can trust him. And we can trust him for today. And we can trust him for whatever tomorrow comes. And because he has been gracious to us, he expects graciousness in return. As a father, I really wanted my three children to understand this truth. My desire was that they would live a life that is free from anxiety. And so there's many different ways that I would reinforce it. I would like to invite my son Alex to come up and he's going to help me show you how I tried to do it with my children. This is my son, Alex. Say hi, Alex. And I'm going to have him sit over here. And um, sometimes during our dinner meals, we would uh, 
sit around and talk. I had three children, have three children. They're all alive, thank God. Um, and we would talk about, where did our supper come from? Something simple. And they would rightly identify that maybe I went to work and earned some money and mom went and shopped and cooked our meals and they would make those connections. And ultimately, though, they would realize that it had been God that gave me the strength and created the opportunities. And so they could connect God's provision with the supper meal that we were having there. Another rhythm that we did was one that we did every Saturday morning. And I commend this to you parents to consider doing with your children. And that is, we had this routine. I'd sit him. This is one of my old kitchen chairs. It's, it's, I think it's almost falling apart now. And I'd sit my kids on Saturday morning after we did our chores on the kitchen chair, just like Alex is sitting here. And I would get out his savings bank. This is a picture of what it looked like. Very simple. You can use jars. And there's three compartments, one for church, God, one for a bank, savings, and one for the store, spending, um, what we're going through in this series. And then I would take and reach into my back pocket and I would pull out his allowance. Now, I started paying him an allowance when he was three years old, so for me, I started with $1 per year, so let's just say $3. And I would turn to Alex, as well as the rest of my children, and I would say, who gets the first dollar, Alex? God gets the first dollar. God gets the first dollar. Why does God get the first dollar, Alex? Because he owns everything. But I'm also thankful that he allowed me to manage the money. Okay, and then I would simply give it to my son at three years old. He was able to articulate that basic truth. Then I would take the next dollar. I say, Alex, who gets the next dollar? The bank gets the next dollar. The what do, why does the bank get the next dollar? Because we have to save our money. Okay, so we taught that. Now, next week, we're going to talk about savings as Christians. And then I would take this last dollar. Say, Alex, who gets this dollar? Me. Yeah, he usually said it that way, too. Um, and what are you going to do with that dollar, Alex? I can spend it on myself, but I can also choose to give it to whatever I would like to do. That's right. And, and so he would have the freedom to decide how it was going to be spent and what he would do with it. And I would remind him that part of that freedom was the freedom to continue to give. And sometimes Alex actually was a very generous uh, young man, and sometimes he would act on that. And, uh, and if he chose to spend it on something silly, I didn't get in the way because he started with the, with the notion that it was God's to begin with. And he had been given the privilege of managing and figuring that out. And so it became clear for my children as I was raising them that they could trust God as the owner and the provider of all that we had. And then once they had that basic trust in place, I now had the freedom to teach them the principles of how to act with what they had been um, allowed to be able to manage. So Alex, I'm gonna send you over there. I appreciate it. Thank you, son. Did a great job. Once that truth is in place, my next encouragement is this. We should respond to God's generosity with patterns of biblical giving. And what I mean with is this. There's characteristics to the approaches that we should take as we organize ourselves around the practice of biblical giving. For example, as Christians, we should give systematically. That is, we should give on a regular basis. It should be a normal rhythm of our personal discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ. This routine can be weekly, it can be bi-monthly, it can be monthly, but there needs to be 
a routine around it. In his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes in the 16th chapter, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Listen here. On the first day of every week, hear the rhythm, hear the routine, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. You see, Paul's encouraging them to practice benevolent giving through a collection that he's beginning to take that will ultimately benefit believers that are trapped in poverty in Jerusalem. And, and just notice the pattern that he encourages them to use. It's regular. In this case, the, the first day of every week. Now, there can be several practical reasons for this instruction. For example, it just might be easier, I know it is for me, to put aside a small amount frequently than it is to put aside a large amount infrequently or even on an annual basis. But nevertheless, just as Christians should regularly gather for worship, it appears that Paul directs that Christians should regularly give also. And it's worth noting that in this direction that he offers, it's not just for the Christians that were gathered in Corinth where he was writing, but he also had given that instruction to the many churches that had already received this information in the province of Galatia. Now, for some of us, when we ever we come to church or we attend, uh, we give. You know, the basket comes by and we reach in and we give. And my question is, is that systematic? Is that what Paul is describing here? And my answer would be, maybe, perhaps, but I think perhaps not also. See, when you're not physically here, when you don't come to the local church, are you still setting aside your wealth as an act of worship so that you can participate in offering it when you do return? That, I would argue, is systematic. If not, maybe not so systematic. And so I encourage you, like Paul encouraged the Christians in Corinth and in Galatia, to be prepared to systematically give in response to God's generosity to you. In this same passage, we can see that Paul also challenged Christians to give proportionally. And that is to give according to their ability, or as he says in verse 2, as he may prosper. And this giving is in keeping with a household's income. The amount is to be set aside as dependent on the degree to which the giver has prospered. And this is echoed by Paul in a letter later that he wrote to the Corinthians where he acknowledged their gift and he marked that they gave according to their means, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's interesting here to note that no percentage of giving is actually offered. Actually, in all of the major texts within the New Testament, percentage given is not discussed at all. See, this passage would have been a perfect place for the Apostle Paul to teach about tithing. And, you know, tithing is setting aside 10% of your income and using that as an offering. And yet, it doesn't even enter into the description that Paul offers here. And I ask the question, why is that? Because that's a topic of discussion in, in our churches. So I want to take a little sidebar in tithing for a moment. If you've been around Pastor Chastine long enough, you've probably heard him walk us through the six-act drama of Scripture. It's just a way of reviewing the big picture, the overall picture of the story of redemption. It's sort of the Bible uh, in six acts and, and several scenes. And in Act 1, God's kingdom is established in creation. That's Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Act 2, there's a rebellion in the kingdom, and through Adam and Eve, there's a fall. That's Genesis chapter 3. In Act 3, 
God begins immediately his plan of redemption. And he chooses Israel as his people. And he gives them a home in Palestine. And, and listen, he creates a relationship with them that includes some important elements like the Sabbath and, and, and a temple and sacrifices and even the concept of tithing. All of them are organized to foreshadow a bigger truth that's going to come in the person of Jesus Christ that comes in Act 4. And then in Act, chapter, in Act 4, Jesus comes and he actually accomplishes the redemption story. He's God's reconciled to man through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And all of those foreshadows, including the strict 10% and more tithing of the Old Testament, they're replaced in the light of the one who they were foreshadowing and pointing towards. For the kingdom has come and the strict requirements of the law are replaced by the generous responsibilities of grace. And we here at Redemption Hill Church, we're now in Act 5. See, we're spreading the news of King Jesus throughout the world while we anticipate his soon coming return and the completion of this redemption story with a new creation in Act 6. And while we can look back to the Old Testament so we can understand the lessons that are available to us about this coming King Jesus and the principles of that kingdom, we are no longer bound to the strict adherence of those elements that were supposed to point us towards him to begin with. We no longer maintain a strict Sabbath, for Jesus is our Sabbath. We no longer go to, go to temple because the body of Christ now is the temple of God. We no longer sacrifice animals, for the sacrifice of the cross is all sufficient. And we no longer tithe 10% as a requirement, for we are now, listen, don't miss this, we are now free to be even more generous in our response to God's redemptive story. According to Paul, if anyone has prospered greatly, he should give a large amount. He should not be limited by a mere 10%. And if, according to Paul, one has prospered only a little, a smaller gift given in faith is completely acceptable. You see, as I state this, I realize that, that some of us here this morning are really in difficult circumstances. Perhaps you're a college student and, and you believe that in your mind you can't give right now. Or perhaps you're someone that's really struggling with a large amount of debt, whether it's consumer debt or student loans or mortgage debt, and you just don't see how you can give. Well, know that next week we're going to talk about debt as part of our discussion on savings. But for this week, this principle of proportionality should help you think about giving. Because while it's true that you may be under some constraints, I encourage you, humble yourself before God and ask him what he might have you to share, given your current reality. And it's been my experience that the answer is rarely nothing. It's most often at least a small, proportionate gift that when it's given in faith releases the grip that anxiety often has on us and it declares God's ownership and it declares his provision in your life and in the life of people that are around you. And so I encourage you, like Paul encouraged the Christians in Corinth and Galatia, to be prepared to honestly assess your bounty 
and then give proportionally in response to God's generosity to you. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's a third principle. We should give intentionally in order to be able to meet genuine needs. Now, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he wrote that they had responded with generous giving to advance the kingdom of God through Paul's gospel efforts. In Philippians chapter 4, this is what he says. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered, catch this, into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You see, their efforts had not been born out of guilt. They weren't responding to just another pressured request. Rather, Paul says that their giving was deliberate. It was an act of partnership. It was not random. They saw the big picture that Paul was trying to accomplish in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they determined to put their money where their mouth was. And it's this kind of giving that occurs even right here in Medford when members and regular attendees of Redemption Hill Church really grasp the vision that we have to reach greater Medford and Massachusetts and North America and even to the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the kind of giving that occurs when we not only mouth the words that we exist to glorify God by living out his mission as a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we embrace that mission, how? Through the intentional giving that's necessary to support and resource those strategies. You see, again in the second letter of the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul references this kind of giving when he highlights the giving of the churches that are there in Macedonia. Those believers had heard about the relief efforts for the Jerusalem church, and and they responded with great intentionality. They had connected the dots. In fact, Paul says that they literally were begging. I don't see many people begging to give in life, but they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They'd connected the dots. They followed the logic of a gospel need and a gospel response. And so they gave with great deliberateness. The elders of of Redemption Hill Church, we, we applaud generosity when it's offered outside of these doors. We are here in the city. You've heard us say it many times, for the city. But we do believe that the local church should be the intentional priority of giving for it's as a gathered community of faith that we have the biggest impact upon our culture as we act together in our mission. And so I encourage you, like Paul encouraged the Christians in Philippi, to be prepared to give how? Intentionally in response to God's generosity to you. Last point on this encouragement. Paul went on to commend those very same Macedonians because they not only gave with intentionality, but listen, they gave sacrificially. He wrote to Corinth about that example, and he put it this way, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. 
They went the extra mile, and as followers of Jesus Christ, were to give generously. And part of the equation for determining our true giving potential is to equip ourselves with what I consider to be one of the most important questions of stewardship that I and my family have ever asked ourselves. When we consider our lifestyle as 21st century North American Christians, we ask ourselves the question, how much is enough? And sometimes when people hear me ask that question, they think I'm asking, how much is enough for me to give? And that's not what I mean. The question is, how much is enough for me to live? Because once I've defined that, I'm free to be able to release whatever else comes into my life. To borrow a useful image, maybe in our financial stewardship, maybe our families have been called to be aircraft carriers and not submarines. You know what I mean by that? Our hands are held open and God graces us with some financial means, but it's not intended to stay there. It's intended to take off and go to another location. And so I would encourage us, rather than grasp all that we can and sort of dive underwater like a submarine would, would, might do, that we instead think of higher kingdom purposes and ask ourselves, how much is enough for us to live so that I can be free to be able to give? When addressing the Philippians, the Apostle Paul understood sacrificial giving, and listen, he didn't fear it. We've talked a lot about fear this morning. He was not anxious. Under the mighty hand of God the Father, God the Creator, God the Provider, he stated, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, play, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul was free to be sacrificial. And he was free to encourage others to be sacrificial in their pattern of giving. And so this morning, I am free to encourage you, just as he encouraged Christians in Philippi, to be prepared to give sacrificially in response to God's graciousness to you and to me. My third and final encouragement is this. We should respond to God's generosity with attitudes, not just patterns, but attitudes of biblical giving. And what I mean is this. There's characteristics to the heart conditions that we manifest as we participate in patterns of biblical giving. So here's a real simple one. You've heard me probably share this from this platform. Uh, giving should be voluntary. In other words, giving should be done out of one's free volition. Again, in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul addressed the gift that they were preparing for the poor that were in Jerusalem. He wrote, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, each one must give as he has what decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good 
work. A willing gift. Not an exaction. So bountifully, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Honestly, what is one of the most common complaints you have when you invite somebody possibly to come to Redemption Hill Church? Their picture of the church is what? They just want my money. Have you ever encountered that at all? Especially here in New England, we went over the statistics. That's a, that's a really hard thing for us to push back upon. I got to be honest, as a pastor, I hate that accusation. I think the elders share that with me. May it never be said about Redemption Hill Church for week after week when we stand before you and we lead in our response to God in worship through giving. I hope that you never, ever, ever give one dollar out of compulsion or manipulation or guilt. Now, if the spirit of the living God is moving within your person and convicts and provokes in this area of stewardship, then I'll pass the basket. Because ultimately, the need to give flows from our relationship with who he is. Don't get me wrong. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that the rhythm of stewardship through giving is really essential for our spiritual health. We consider it to be part of our personal discipleship strategy to develop those healthy rhythms of word and prayer and service and giving. But may it never be done from a place of coercion. Earlier in chapter 8, Paul insisted that just as the Macedonians had begged to participate in that Jerusalem relief effort, the Corinthians were urged... Encouragement is okay. Urge to follow through in their giving, but listen to what he said. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also, what, genuine. In fact, Paul told the Philippians that their infectious willingness, not their compulsion, their infectious willingness to give had left him, what, well supplied, Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice that was acceptable and pleasing to God. Here's my question. As you're reaching in and systematically, intentionally, and purposely putting an offering into the basket, have you ever considered that every time you do that voluntarily, when you release your wealth in generosity, that its aroma is a delight to the nostrils of God. See, that's the picture that I want us to have. And so I encourage you, like Paul encouraged the Christians that were there in Philippi and in Corinth, to be prepared to give voluntarily in response to God's grace in their life. Giving should be done in a cheerful manner. And it doesn't mean that the giver isn't aware of the many other opportunities that you could have used the money for, but it's an understanding, a sort of a deep appreciation of God's grace. And then that appreciation turns into a measure of cheerfulness. Apostle Paul linked voluntary giving and cheerfulness together. We just read it a minute ago. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Why not under compulsion? Let's look at the back half. For God loves a cheerful giver. 
You want to know how to sort of allow God to have some extra pleasure with your life? Release cheerfully whatever it is that you're holding on. Because he loves that. It echoes what Proverbs 22.8 says. God loves or blesses a cheerful and generous man. Now, it's always interesting to me when I cross, run across a brother or a sister in Christ who demonstrates tremendous cheerfulness and generosity as they give up their time in service to others, but then they fail to take that same level of cheerfulness and generosity to the giving up of their wealth. And it's that confusion that takes place, and I hear them say, well, I give up my time. God doesn't really need my money, which is a true statement. My time is my wealth. And, and to be honest, it kind of sounds pious. I mean, it, it does. It sounds kind of cool. But I think it's important that we remember the scriptures encourage cheerfulness to be a characteristic for both giving up your time and giving up your wealth. We're to be cheerful givers in both of those arenas. And so I encourage you, like Paul encouraged the Christians that were there in Philippi and in Corinth, to be prepared to give cheerfully in response to God's generosity to you. And then finally, our motivation for giving, it should be love. It's the kind of love that recognizes the needs of others while still having an eye to please God and to obey his commands and to re reflect his character. To the Corinthians, Paul put it like this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about nothing less than the gospel itself. See, we know that Jesus Christ is the greatest gift of all, motivated by the greatest love of all. John 3, 16, 17 is so familiar to us that we, we forget to grasp its power. For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only son the best, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved, and so he gave, extravagantly gave. And just as Jesus died for the sins of others, likewise, believers, you and I, should give of ourselves out of love. And this should include our wealth. We should give so that the needs of other people are met, whether it's directly through our gift or indirectly through the church. In fact, we pray that God would bless us more, not so that we can become fat and bloated. We pray that he would bless us more so that we actually can have more to do what? To be able to give and to serve in his name. Giving from a place of love reminded me of a story. Now, I've got to be honest. I'm not 100% sure that this story is completely true. But nevertheless, I think it'll make the point that we need to be made. A number of years ago, a volunteer at a local hospital got to know a little girl named Liz. And she was suffering from a pretty rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion received from her five-year-old brother. 
he had miraculously survived that same disease and he had developed antibodies that were needed to be able to combat the illness. And so with his family present, the doctor explained the situation to this little five-year-old boy and he gently asked the brother if he'd be willing to give his blood to his sister. This volunteer saw the little boy hesitate just for a moment and then he took a deep breath and he bravely said, yes, I'll do it if it'll save her. And so they hooked up the transfusion and the transfusion progressed. And as he laid in bed next to his sister and smiled, it reflected the smiles of everyone that was in the room because it really was obvious that the transfusion was successful. Eventually the little boy's face grew pale and his smile faded and he became quiet. And he looked up at the doctor and he, he asked with a little boy's trembling voice, Will I die right now or soon coming? And the room, just like this room, it was stunned in silence because it was clear to everyone that this boy had misunderstood the request that was before him. He thought that he was going to have to give his sister all of his blood in order to save her. And he was prepared to do it. That's the, kind, that's the kind of heart that God asks for us to bring to the grace of giving. You see, as a practical issue, he rarely asks us to give everything because he knows our needs. But he often asks that we prepared to be able to do so, that our hearts and our hands and our heads are in that place. I'd like to remind us about our main point this morning. You see, when we trust God as the owner and the provider of all that we have, it produces freedom in our lives. We're free to respond with both the patterns that we talked about this morning and the attitudes. We give because God first gave to us. And our giving, it's motivated by what? By thanks to God for what he has done for us in the gospel and so our giving is modeled after the gospel. We can be free from anxiety because we know we have a big God and we can trust him no matter what. We are free to give systematically, proportionally, intentionally, sacrificially. We're free to have the heart conditions of being voluntary and cheerful and even motivated by love, which first was bestowed upon us. These are to be the marks of our giving. And so I invite the worship team to come forward. And as they're coming forward, I want to remind you about the envelopes that each one of you are holding right now. Do you remember those? I want you to take them out. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What did you do to deserve this envelope this morning? You didn't even know it was coming. I knew. You did nothing. Open it up. I already see some of you are. In there, you're going to find three $1 bills. I've personally given them to each one of you. It's been voluntary. It's been cheerful. 
It really has been motivated by love. When God put this idea into my heart, I was thrilled to put it into action. And so as a result, you've been blessed with something you did not strive for, you did not angle for, you did not create this opportunity. It simply came to you as grace. And so my question would be to you, who gets the first dollar? Alex Reddy? Who gets the first red? Who gets the first dollar? John Vickers? Who gets the first dollar? Margaret Costello. Who gets this first dollar? Redemption Hill Church? Who gets the first dollar? Yeah. 